the How Hard Can It Be up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. This week, my guest is G20 member Dino De Palma, who most recently served as the chief executive officer of Bennu Networks, a provider of enterprise technology that allows network operators to dynamically and exponentially scale existing networks for better service agility and increase stickiness in the home and the business. Prior to that, he was the chief operating officer at Acme Packet, a company he helped take public and eventually sell to Oracle in a transaction valued well over $2 billion. Dino also served as senior vice president of worldwide sales and business development at Acme Packet and as the VP of sales and business development prior to that. Before Acme Pacadino was the VP of International Business Development of SEMA Priority Call, where he spent six years in systems engineering, sales, and business development. Now, Dino's twice been the first guy on the ground to open up a new international territory, and we spent the second part of our conversation talking about what it takes to do that effectively. Our conversation included his single most important piece of advice when it comes to doing so, uh, thoughts on how to pick the right time and place to begin, and another 20 minutes of hands-on practical thinking on the right way to take your business from the country it happens to be born in to those that might end up being critical to its growth, uh, its product vision, and the scale of its success. This is a topic I'm also passionate about and have also learned a lot about during my time at Actifio, and I really hope anyone considering doing the same will listen in on what a couple of guys who've made all the big mistakes have to say about doing it right. As always, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Dino De Palma. All right, with me today is Dino De Palma on this icy, cold December day. Thank you for braving the elements for us, Dino. Thank you for having me. Um, it is it is uh, a balmy, I think it's warmed up to three uh, here in Boston. Um, I've not been out since this morning. Is it just a nightmare out there? It's cold, but, you know, I grew up in Montreal, so. Yeah, you got you to dress I, I, for I, it. I, you've got to dress and be ready to 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 brave the uh, the element. You're no no weather weenie. It's really just a matter of of, of having the right coat. Exactly. Um, all right. So so tell me about that. You you grew up in Montreal, and uh, did you come from a big family or a small family? Or I came from uh, a small immediate family. Uh, one sister who's three years uh, younger grew up uh, in in the city in Montreal. Uh, had a very large extended family with you know very close to the grandfather and grandmother spend most most weekends and summers about uh, an hour north of Montreal up in the Laurentian Mountains so I had a bit of the city life and the country life and uh, you know a lot of cousins that I got to hang out with and large extended uh, Italian and, and French Canadian family parlez-vous français je parle français oui uh, oh well. I was in uh, Quebec with my kids and we went over to um we went over to Montreal. We went to a ski, like a ski place. Um, Mont Tremblant. Mont Tremblant, yeah. yeah. And um, had this, had really a, a great experience. Um, I, I love Quebec. I haven't spent as much time in Montreal, but uh, it's it's incredible that you can 
it's so close to feel so far away. You it know? is. Well, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but Quebec is the uh, oldest North American city. Yeah. It's over 400 years. Um, and I grew up, you know, you asked me if French was my, if I speak French, it was in fact my mother tongue. I spoke French before I spoke English. Huh. My mom kept these tapes of me, because as mothers do, and I have the heaviest French-Canadian accent when I, when I speak English. I, so you grow up there, and um, normal childhood, one would expect? Anything unusual about uh, your circumstance? Uh? No. I mean, I, I grew up a um, big, big hockey player, avid fan of the, the Habs. Uh, you know, I played hockey every chance I could. I played up to junior hockey, and all I wanted to do was, was just, you know, play hockey as, as much as I can. We did skiing on weekends and snowmobiling. Uh, I grew up playing drums. My, my dad was a jazz pianist uh, as well as a teacher, but spent most of the weekends and um, many days during the week uh, doing gigs and doing studio recordings. So I learned how to play drums. Uh, got through college with that. Uh, really close with my, my mom, my dad, my sister. My dad's passed a long time ago, but we, we had a close-knit family and, and spent quite a bit of time with um, my grandfather and grandmother on my mom's side. Um, we would spend all weekend with them up at the cottage in the summer. Uh, so, yeah, normal childhood, you know, lots of summertime included, you know, being at the lake, swimming, and winter was playing hockey as, as often as I actually could. Have you continued to play drums? or I still play drums. Um, you know, when I was uh, at Acme with uh, Andy and company, we had the, uh, the, the Acme Packet Band, um, and we, we played uh, at a lot of sales trainings and, and, uh, and different events, so that was always fun. I still have two kits at the house, and I go downstairs on a regular basis and, and, and practice, uh, you know, at least a couple of times a week. That's fun. All right, so uh, where did you go to college? I went to uh, McGill University, yep. uh, right downtown uh, Montreal. It was, you know, I'd say an easy choice in the sense that it's one of the, the better schools in the country, and it was right next door. I didn't have to, to pay for any rent and uh, decided to, to, to go there and, and do my undergrad. What did you study? I did political science and economics. Right. Beautiful place. I've been, yeah. I've been there. Nice uh, and right, right uh, in the, in one of the nicer parts of Montreal too. So yeah, it's right downtown. I mean, it's you look out from the campus and you've got a view on, on the city. It's you have access to everything. It's it's gorgeous. Hard to beat. Uh, what'd you do after school? So after school, after my uh, undergrad, I actually decided to um, teach skiing uh, for full time for one year and. That was was a ton of fun. Uh, I skied seven days a week and and lived, uh, you know, a good life for a, for a single <laughs> single guy. Uh, then I decided to do uh, um, graduate go to graduate school at Concordia. I did my master's degree in public policy and business administration. It was a split degree, and at that time I started to uh, work in politics. Uh, became a political and press attaché for the Quebec Liberal Party. Uh, organized campaigns for a lot of the by-elections and was extremely involved in uh, provincial and federal politics, did a lot of radio uh, for the young liberals representing, you know, from the 18 to 25 group, and actually thought that was going to be my career moving forward was to work heavily in politics. What changed? 
Well, a few things. One is we, we lost the election. And uh, when you lose the election, you realize that uh, your great job and career, unless you're willing to switch party, just goes away. Right, right. And so I didn't know what I was going to go do next. I thought about going to work for a few consulting firms that, that had approached me. And luck had it that one of my really good friends that uh, I went to the equivalent of junior college in Quebec, but it's mandatory. It's called CJET, but you have no choice. You do 11 years of high school, two years of this this CJEP, and then three years of university. So at the end, it's the same that you do here, but it's split different in Quebec. I met um, a few really lifelong friends, one being this individual uh, named Neil Siegel, uh, who I think you, you know as well. Yeah. And he moved to um, the U.S. Uh, and, and actually went to Harvard and became friends with Andy. Um, and Andy and Neil. Andy Ori. Andy Ori. Yep. And Andy Ori and Neil will come to visit me um, up at McGill. And I'd go visit them up at Harvard. And some of the times I would, you know, look at classes that, you know, you'd read the professors and you say, wow, that'd be cool if I can go sit in a class and we'd sure. hang out. I got to know uh, Andy really well. And uh, Andy said, you're not working and called. And I and, uh, decided that I should go work for Priority Call Management and started it off, of all things, as a systems engineer. I didn't know anything about technology, but thought it'd be a good way to get my my hands dirty, and that was it. I, I moved. I thought I'd be here for three to six months, and it's been 21 years. Wow. Your first day as a systems engineer with no background in systems engineering, like, what what, what was that like? I mean... It, um, it, it was um, definitely stressful in the sense that you come into a new environment. I'd never seen anything like that. There was only probably about 20, 22 of us at the time prior to call management, and everything's buzzing around because it's, it's a startup, and you're thrown right you know, into it. Like, you know, can you help configure this system? And I'm like, I, can, I don't even know if I know, knew what configure actually yeah. meant as, as a word. And I got help early on from a couple of really key folks that – spend time with me and decided they, you know, they, they'd help me out, thought I could get it. And, you know, within, I'd say, you know, a couple of months, I was out in the field and configuring systems and bringing them up and getting them to work. At the same time, I think I realized early on that, you know, I much preferred the business development and sales route than, than the um, more technical uh, part of it, and so as we progress, I started doing a lot more work in in building the relationships and the accounts, and and then quickly got moved into uh, sales and and business development role. And like any startup, uh, you get to do things that you're not ready for, uh, like moving into systems engineering. But quickly, we started doing business in Asia, um, in Latin America, and you know, it was. Dino, why don't you go over? Why don't you go over to Hong Kong? And, and so next thing I knew, I was uh, developing uh, our China opportunity and managing all of the business for, for APAC. Uh, wasn't ready, uh, but I learned along the way. I had a couple of good mentors. One, this individual who I still remember, I called him Mr. Chan. His, his name was Bernard Chan or Chan Suying. And he really coached me on how to do business, specifically in China and, and Hong Kong. And, you know, within a couple of years, that's that's what I was doing and moved then to, to work in Latin America for, for Priority Call. And all of a sudden, I was the guy who knew how to do business globally as opposed to just, you know, focusing on uh, on business in North America. 
you know, name of the podcast is How Hard Can It Be? And that's, yeah. that's, like yeah. your, that's your motto. Yeah. yeah. You know, looking back, how much of it was, you know, looking at the business as an opportunity? I mean, you kind of uprooted your life. You, it was early and you were still sort of mobile and, and not tied down to anywhere. But, but was it all, you know, did you make the decision really solely based on the people? How, do you, how, how big a factor was your perceived, you know, the, your perception that the priority call management was a great business and how much of it was just these guys are really smart and they're going to they're gonna find a way to make money? It was... It was actually a combination because when I was first introduced to the idea and the the product, I thought it had a lot of legs. You know, the ability to have, it was a one number service. So basically your your one number became your mobile office and you could create conference calls. You could get faxes. You could actually receive calls and... Uh, have multiple devices ring either sequentially or simultaneously. Uh, one funny story is that you know Andy and I would take flights to LA quite often. We were working on an account called PageNet, and you could United had a special, which I think they stopped because of of, of Andy and and, and, and I. Uh, you could actually get on the phone and one call, and stay on that call for the duration of the flight. Well, I would get on the call, and just stay on it. And when people would call, I'd hear the beep, and I could take the call. So I was taking calls, you know, 10,000 feet in the air, yeah. uh, which really impressed at that time um, Goldman Sachs, who thought they needed to have this. And and the technology I bought into, but at the same time, I'd never been around the startup environment. You know, I don't think Montreal, it's growing now, but wasn't really big and, and startups didn't, didn't exist. And the energy, you know, between the, the co-founders and, and the VP of engineering, Pat Malampi, who, you know, who's part of the G20 as well, it was infectious. You know, once you were in there, you just wanted to be part of it. And, you know, the idea of even going home at five or six didn't make any sense because you were just, it was exciting. So you stayed longer. And um, it's somewhat like you see in, in, in the movies when you first get started. Yeah. And I think when you're in your early 20s, you... It's infectious. So I think it was a combination of the technology that I thought was pretty cool and then uh, the people that I met that were everyone. You know, I would say when I first came to, to priority call management, I would say you don't shine if you're really good or smart. You shine if you're not because one person is better and smarter than, than the next. Right. And it, um, that was infectious. Right. Um, so that was a nice outcome, priority call management? It was. And uh, what was your thought process as you thought about what was next? Well, that was interesting. I, you know, I wish my dad uh, had been alive to, to see this because we were then acquired by LHS and then SEMA. And SEMA at the time decided that they were going to give me a real interesting uh, promotion, potentially move to the south of France, which happens to be one of my favorite places on the planet, you know, more money than I ever thought I would make before um, moving to the U.S. And um, Andy called, and I went to his house and uh, went in his kitchen, and he was on a whiteboard, and Pat and this individual Cliff were describing, you know, how the new world with SIP was going to revolutionize how we, you know, make calls and, 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 and you know, real-time 
services and it's like wow this is this is really interesting I, I you know I, I even understood why our one number service didn't work because we were you know using you know legacy network and and, and moving to, to IP could really make this um, uh, new opportunity and make the economics work and so I decided that I was leaving Sema and I was joining and, and I called my dad I said, Dad, this is really exciting. I have an opportunity, you know, to, to go join Andy. Um, and, you know, I get to invest early on, so I'll be an investor and, uh, you know, I'll be part of the original team. And, and so my dad said, let me understand this. You're going to leave a really good paying job with security to go work with your friend again. And you don't know where the company is going for half the money that you're making now. And you're giving him money. And I said, geez, I, you know, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound as, as good of an idea. It sounded great five minutes ago, but now I'm like a little, geez. Kind of a buzzkill. Kind of a buzzkill. Yeah. And I said, no, Dad, it's the right thing to do. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And and then I, I moved, you know, to, to be the lead sales and BD uh, individual on in, in Andy's team. Um, unfortunately, one of our good friends who joined the same time as I did, um, Andrew Coppola, you know, passed away, uh, and that was a challenging time for us. But other than that moment, which was obviously very sad and, and painful, um, other than that moment, you know, Acme was just a great, just a great ride, kind of like Priority Call, but uh, you know, on steroids. What What made that business special? It was a combination of really the right market timing. Um, you know, where everyone was speaking about moving to voice over IP and we're facing serious techno- technology challenges and, and everyone was willing to move uh, uh, in, into that area. And then the combination of people that Andy had put together, um, the, you know, the first, like anything else, the first 15, 20, 30 people uh, were great. It was a good yin-yang. We had, you know, a bunch of the priority call engineers, a lot of the Nortel engineers from Bay. Um, so there was a lot of expertise on that clash, but then came together to to build something uh, great. Um, so the, the team was, was unbelievable. And, you know, when you have the right market timing and you start winning some strategic accounts, the, the excitement... Um, is, is palpable. And that doesn't mean we didn't face any challenges. I mean, through the 14 plus years, you know, there was a few years and at least one or two quarters that as a public company um, were painful, that we didn't make the number and, and we had to, you know, retool and, and get back up and, and um, make it successful. But through it all, it was a very, very tight team. And, it, you know, the people that I, I, I've been able to work and build a relationship with our, you know, friends for life. I was actually driving here and I called our lead guy that led Europe for us. And, you know, we don't work together anymore, but I still speak to him at least, you know, once a week. Yeah. Companies change, but the relationships endure. Exactly. That's a common theme in these conversations. Uh, you guys took that company public, had a successful IPO, and were later acquired by, by a big company, by Oracle, in fact. You know, was that a, was that had to be bittersweet at some level? Um, getting bought by them. I mean, obviously, a huge return on, on the, the money you gave your friend uh, several years earlier. But, uh, you know, w- w- describe that time for you guys. It was, I think that's the right description. It was, it was bittersweet. You know, it was obviously, 
you know, on a personal financial level, it was very exciting. You know, it was another exit on, on top of the IPO, uh, and it was a way to put a bookend on a very successful journey. The bitter part was when you build a company from scratch and you're there at the beginning finding your first customers. I mean, I actually would take the session border controller and travel to China. I actually put it in my suitcase so I could show them what it looked like to make them believe it was a real product. Um, and to move from that to then, you know, handing over the keys to um, the, the large ship that, that, that Oracle actually is um, and, and watching your company being, you know, I wouldn't say torn, torn apart, that's not the right word, but um, that you no longer have the keys. You know, you, Andy, Pat, myself are no longer uh, Seamus. We're, we're no longer uh, Peter running the company. Right. Someone else is. Um, was, was, was tough. And, and you know, I, I, my belief was we had talked about, there was always debate, you know, do we continue on? Do we make a couple of strategic acquisitions to get to the next level? And I think everyone felt it was just time. It was time to to move on, and, and when you had is you know the the type of offer at two point three billion, um, it seemed like insanity n- not to take it. Uh, but in your heart, you didn't want to. Sure. You knew it was the right thing to do. From a th- you know your brain is saying, of course you have to do it. In your heart, you know I, I still remember when when Andy signed the final papers, and I was in the meeting room, and I was like, wow, it's a it's a sad day. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's incredible. You work so hard to, for that, and then it happens, and it's, it is a little sad. You know, you walk away from that. You know, you you, you, uh, you get hit by a truckload of money, as Paul English would say, and, and now you got to kind of, you know, figure out what you want to do. Describe that time, right? So there, there's some morning where you get up and you don't have to go to work, and and you got to kind of start over. And like, how do you? How did you? Um, how did you approach the problem opportunity of trying to decide what you wanted to do next? You know, I stayed at, at Oracle for about a year and a half after we were acquired and, and, and attempted to help. I think I did some uh, valuable things, attempted to help with the transition. Um, and I think that was my hardest time because you watch things that you had done to build up the relationships to make sure that your customers were supported. And when you're acquired by a larger company, it's not that they don't care or they're not doing th- things right. They have to do things differently. Sure. You know, it's, it's a different, what you could do as a standalone, even if you're, you know, seven, 800 people, is still relatively small compared to Oracle. It's very different. Um, so watching how we manage and treated our customers, I, I've, that was the most difficult for me. I, I understand uh, the loyalty to them, but if you had to do that over, would you do it again? Stick around for that long, and I would not. Yeah, I would not. I would move out earlier. Yeah. I think it was um, getting to having to witness, you know, parts of what you built up being um, done differently. You know, I'll leave it at that. Was challenging, and so I stayed. From my perspective, you live and learn. Probably a little too long. I, I would have left maybe after six months, not a year and a half. Yeah, and uh, you know, the day I left, and I ended up taking two to three months completely off, which uh, was the right thing to do just to sort of set my mind straight on what I enjoyed. And what I realized is that, you know, I have a preference working for a smaller organization. Uh, It doesn't have to be 20 people. Uh, You know, it could be larger, uh, but I know it's not, you know, 60,000 people that I want to be. That's not where I want to be working. Right. So what did you do next? Um, I ended up moving on to be um, CEO of Bennu Networks, which was focused on 
uh, Wi-Fi technology, uh, really enabling the smart home or the smart business as you have a proliferation of devices that are going to be Wi-Fi enabled. You need to be able to control those those devices in a much more intelligent way. And we were building software to enable um, carriers to provide that product to to the end user or to the small business. How long at Benno? Uh, Two years. And what what did you take away from that experience? Well, what I took away, you know, from um, it, it was making certain changes is more difficult when you walk into an organization that has been doing things the same way for four to five years. So one of the key changes is that we were a hardware-based uh, company, and we work really hard to move from hardware to software. Um, and doing that proved to be more challenging, although, you know, that's what the market demanded. You had customers that were already using the hardware, so making that, that change uh, was difficult. Um, and then inheriting a team um, that you haven't built out, um, I think it's just harder to manage in the sense that when you build out your team, and I've been, I had the opportunity to do that through two organizations, these are people that you've worked with, that you know, that you're growing uh, with, that you're f- you face the same challenges. When you come from the outside, it, it just proves to be, at least for my personality, a lot more challenging. Yeah. So I know you're you're still kind of evaluating what you want to do next as you as you look out at the world, fill in the blank. You know, um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do next, but it's most important to me that I have what that I work with people that I I, I like, I trust, and that I enjoy. I think that people as I get you know further into my career, I've been doing this for 20 years. Working with good people is critical to me. Yeah, because it's at the end of the day. You know, I remember what my dad said to me. You're going to spend 85% of your time at work at, you know, at the end. When you look at your life, you better enjoy it. Both at Priority Call Management and at Acme Packet, Dino was the guy that got sent into a new territory to open it up for the business. Uh, the international business was critically important to both of those companies, and I asked Dino for his best advice for companies that are looking to do the same. Here's the second part of my conversation with Dino De Palma. You realize that it, it at first it seems really daunting, and then the other part of it is it's just exciting. You know, at Priority Call, that, that was my first opportunity to, to tackle, you know, the brave new world, and, you know, the first international place I ended up doing was was China. I mean, talk about the most difficult place you could do business in. You don't understand the language. You have no clue uh, about the culture because you're young and you're just getting uh, into selling into that area. And you're thrust into how do, how do you sell the product? What do you do? Um, and, and you know what you quickly find is that uh, at the end of the day, Whatever product you're selling, um, you still have to, as you go out there, you have to build solid relationships. Um, and especially from a company that's global coming in or from the U.S. coming in, in into um, you know, a different culture, a different country, you have to be able to demonstrate that, that the product that you're selling, they actually need. Um, and then you need the local representation if you're going to go internationally. So, you know, our ability to find the right partner and this individual uh, called Bernard Chan, who understood the Chinese market, was, was critical for us. So, um, you know, you, you walk in and I think you, 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 
you know, you learn as, as, as you go, you adapt your presentation. So I remember one of the things we ended up doing was as we were presenting and I've, we were just translating every single, you know, pitch that I had. And I said, well, why don't we do one line in English and one line in Chinese so I could speak, they see it at the same time. And something as small as that made a big difference. We were able to do more presentations during that day. People got it. They asked better questions. And we continued to, to move forward. But when you, you get off into those, you know, especially internationally, you know, areas where you speak the language is a little easier, but where you don't, um, it's daunting. Did you find um, Mr. Chan before you went there, or did you find him on the ground? We found him before we went there. Um, he was um, approached us. Uh, he had learned about the product and thought it was a good idea to approach uh, Priority Call. And I met with him, Andy met with him, and we ended up you know, really liking how he, he did uh, business, uh, I, that he understood the, the global market, and, um, and off we went. Um, and then, you know, once I learned that, then you, you know, so, so you, you build a, a rhythm. And I said, okay, how are we going to do business in Latin America? Well, you know, then this was the opposite. I went searching for the right partner in Argentina, and I found a company called BSA with an individual called Javier Serafini. And, you know, dealt with him from a local perspective. Because when you're small, you have to, you know, when you're 20 people and you want to do business globally, you can't hire 50 people. You don't have that leverage. It's not like if you're Oracle or Cisco and you just spread 20, 30 resources. You have to find someone also who will, you know, preach your gospel once you leave. Um, Because you're in China for a week, you're in Argentina maybe for a week, but then you go away for three, four weeks. You know, finding the right local partner who believes in your product and thinks they can add value and and be able to um, deal with your issues and support you is is, uh, critical. And, you know, the first experience I had uh, managing the business in China, I realized there was a model that I could take that, you know, globally as a, as a startup. And we could, you know, we could replicate what we were doing. You had to find, obviously, the right company and right people to represent your product. Right. So first the Chan, then the plan. Yeah, exactly. That's um, a good one. <laughs> yeah. What are the most important things to look for? in deciding that someone is going to be your partner in a geography where you don't have a lot of experience? Like, is that, is that really come down to, you know, how much of it is, is character and chemistry and, and that kind of stuff versus, oh, well, company B has, you know, this many reps or they rep this many products. Is it, are you picking a person or a company? You're picking reputation. Uh, and by that, I mean, if you look around the people that you deal with, um, you know, there's a, an amount of trust that is unbelievable because, when you decide to partner with someone, especially you know, x you know thousands of miles away, when you leave, they could be doing nothing, right. uh, and you have no clue until it's too late. Uh, so a track record, you know, for me was was critical. You know, have they done this with similar technology? So you look at someone we've partnered with in in Brazil. You know, another individual. Um, in fact, his name is Masatoshi Kanashiro, which is funny because he's Japanese name, but in Brazil, and if you know, there's actually. Uh, large uh, Japanese population in Brazil, but did not know that till the Olympics, but it, but learned it there. Yeah, yeah. so, so you, you you know when you meet, meet someone like that and you look at their track record that they've been selling technology for twenty years and have done it successfully with you know multiple companies. You know, uh, it, it's the same thing that uh, Mr. Chan had had done. So I started to look for people who 
not necessarily the same product, not even a competitive product is not what you want, but have they sold technology successfully to other folks? Because what you also realize if they've done that, they built the relationships locally. And they have that trust that they're going to go find the next right product to bring in to either the enterprise or to the large service providers. So reputation and having done it is one of the keys I look for. Um, and, you know, it's funny because it's the opposite of a startup. You're not giving the chance to someone brand new, but you're looking, okay, where have you done that? And those folks or small companies exist. Uh, you know, as you get bigger, you'll look for larger distribution channels like the Ericsson and the Alcatels to take on your product. But when you're a startup, unless you have something so special and so unique, the large resellers or technology partners don't take your product on until there are proof points in, in the market. And you have a much better chance of success with by dealing with the smaller players. Right. You know, it's almost like you, you sort of work from the customer back. You say, here's the customers I want. Who has relationships with these customers that is a trusted partner of theirs? And then how do I earn my way to be a trusted partner of, of them? Correct. A, a key to, I, I think, our approach at Actifio, which very much mirrors your own. Uh, fortunately, we had a lot of those relationships in the form of people like Jim Sullivan and Ash here, um, both having you know built global businesses, and uh, that was certainly an accelerator for us. But... Um, you know, we would enter a market and we would try to build some sales traction before we built up any infrastructure at all around those people. Like, you know, we we launched, quote unquote, from a marketing standpoint, we launched in Australia, you know, a year after we'd been there with an event that included, you know, four or five customers. And, um, and our feeling has always been, you know, you lead with sales and you have to have a minimum you know, there's there's a minimum threshold of activity and visibility and customer traction you need to have before, you know, all the other shit. You know, the marketing and the PR and like, that's been our approach. Is, is was your experience similar, or do you think that's unique to us? No, I think that that's similar. You have to create that buzz around it. You have to have people interested in your product. Um, you know, the top down approach, at least from technology. I think it's very tough because there's so much stuff out there and, 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 and the larger companies are always claiming that they do everything anyway. So you have to build it from the inside out. Um, and the other part of it, you know, I go back to reputation and trust, is if you find the right local partners, they have that already. It's really tough to build that. I mean, you're going to go to Japan or China. Um, you know, when you show up what a local person, what it also demonstrates is that you're committed to the business and you're committed to supporting them long term. Uh, and, you know, I don't think it's unique. I think it's the way you need to do it, and it's, a, and it's an investment approach. A lot of companies feel that they can walk in and walk out. You can't do that. Yeah. Uh, internationally, they won't do business with you that way. You have to show that you're there for the good times and the not-so-good times, as the priest that married my wife and I would, would, would tell us. And, and you know, you're sticking it through, and then you're rewarded nine times out of ten at, at the end if you're willing to make the investments. And the other is making the right bets. You can't spread yourself too thin. You have to make the right bets and you know, have some focus on the markets that you're, you're going to decide on. Take us into the room. Um, you know, you're in a conference room somewhere in Latin America or in Asia, and, and you're going to explain to this new partner, this person you've chosen based on the criteria you've described, how you've been selling the product, how we sell it in the U.S. How much of that conversation is trying to get them to adopt a proven methodology and how much of it is listening to have them tell you the right way to sell it locally? 
I do a lot more listening. Um, you know, I provide them the basic explanation of how, what the product does, and then I listen. So if you actually look at, you know, the business we did uh, originally at, at Priority Call uh, in China, we didn't sell one number service, which was the key product. We sold voicemail. Why? They were looking for call termination in China. It was a big program that they needed, that the government had mandated they were going to be terminating more calls. So our partner said, Mr. Chan, no, 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 you need to, this is, this is how we're going to get into the product. Had we said, no, we're one number and not listen, we would have missed the whole market opportunity. And, you know, for a company that was doing, I think when we left, $70, $80 million of revenue a year, you know, China one year accounted for five to seven million. It was a big part. When we moved to Latin America, it was the same thing. We were like, well, we're a one number service. And our partners from uh, Javier, uh, BSA in, in Argentina and Massa in Brazil said, you know what we really need is prepaid. And so we had the right platform uh, that we could adopt quickly, but we moved the one number service to a prepaid service. And that Latin America became our most successful market uh, for priority calls. So the ability to listen to what the market needs, um, I, I, you know, I, I think you have to present the product, give them a sense of where it fits, and then let them tell you where and uh, how they can sell it. Right. It's interesting. You went back even deeper. Like the the um, I was really talking more about sales process and sales enablement, and you're talking about product marketing and positioning yeah. in that geography. And um, you know, it sounds like you, that, that willingness to to even package the offering around the particular requirements of a given geography was a big part of the success in both of those. It, you know, it was. And it's, you know, that ability as you walk in to, to listen to what the requirements are. I mean, I'll give you an example. At, at ACME, uh, there was a religious debate, you know, among the management team that we should only support uh, SIP protocol, right? That, that was it. It was the way the world was moving. And everywhere we went, all of our partners globally and all of our customers we're asking for the ability for the Acme SBC platform to support multiple protocols, 323, MGCP, doing interworking between the, the, the protocols. Um, and had we walked into those markets and just said, this is the product, I don't believe we would have been as successful. And actually, in fact, if you look at some of the early competitors like NetRake and Newport, that's the bet they took that it was only, you know, and I believe because it was top-down, they had their, as you said, their way to sell the product and how they were going to sell it, and they moved it through the market without going out and saying, what are, what are, what are your partners and, and customers saying? Right. Uh, and the other was that the ability to find the right partners globally quickly gave us the ability at, at Acme to go um, and tackle not only the North American market but the international market, um, with minimal investment, where a lot of our competitors were just staying in the North American market, and what they didn't realize is that the global market had very different requirements for the product line. You know, that's a good segue into what is always the other half of that role, which is that you know you you have to advocate for the company on behalf of the market, but then you come home and you got to advocate for the market on you know inside the company, whether it's competition for features in the roadmap or engineering capacity or local service capability. Talk talk a little bit about that. What what are the important things to keep in mind for someone who is 
trying to make sure the requirements of an individual territory, which may be very far away, are represented in the priorities uh, at, at back at headquarters? When you're a startup, I think there's only one way. You need to be visible and you need to have a voice that's heard. You know, at least I was fortunate enough in my career that, you know, I was working directly with, you know, the CTO slash VP of engineering and, you know, at Acme and Priority Call, I think it's the way Andy led the company, we were very sales driven. Um, and, you know, if there was a deal to be had and it made sense, you know, that it wasn't one feature just for, you know, a random customer out of nowhere, but that there was some some marketability that extended beyond, you know, um, um, an RFE that only made sense for a small customer, we, w- we would take that on. But you have to have your voice heard. Um, you can't be shy. Uh, if you believe that there's it's, it's right for the company, I mean, I give you the example of the multiple protocols. There were, lar- there were debates at, at the management table. And, you know, I would pound my fist and say, no, this is what we need to do to be successful. Uh, I think you have to have the right mindset that you're not doing it to win. You're doing it because you believe you could add value to the company, right? You, you can, you can add shareholder value. You can make the company more successful. If you believe that, I think you have to have your voice heard and and uh, not stop until it, it gets done and do everything you can to demonstrate it. Uh, which is, you know, bring in the partner if you have to, uh, get on conference calls with the customer and have them explain why they need certain features, um, and and make sure that you get it and you know you in the way i look at it you have to be right hopefully eight to nine times out of ten if you're coming back with requirements and you're wrong 80 percent of the time then you're not doing your job and you know people are not going to listen to you if you're right 80 to 90 percent guess what they just go okay click let's just move forward right so the standard is not perfection no but it's that in the majority of instances what you said would happen happened yeah correct yeah um, last question is, is um, given all that, right, given the nature of the challenge, um, h- how does a young company who's contemplating international expansion decide when is the right time? Like, is there a way to think about the internal threshold of commitment? Or, or you know, if you were advising some startup in terms of who was contemplating an expansion into a new territory, what are the kinds of questions you'd ask to determine if they were, in fact, ready? The first thing I would ask is, you know, do you have the product working anywhere close to home? Um, And until then, I think it's early. You want to be able to at least have some local customer that you've proven the technology out. Because it's the first question overseas that they're going to ask is, do you have a reference? Um, And you don't need 20 references, but you want at least one that proves it out. I think once you have that, one or two, um, it's time to, to move. You know, unlike... 15, 20 years ago where you would sit at a, you know, at a board and argue that you should first start in the U.S. and then move internationally. I think with how the world communicates, with social media, with um, how small the world is, there is no need to wait because most likely if you're doing something interesting, someone else will be doing it and you're going to limit the size of your market. So get it working, get one or two reference accounts and then go out as, as quickly as you can. And depending on your budget, that's where you have to decide. You, can you have the budget to put a person locally? If you don't, then go find you know the right distributors to, to resell your product and represent you. There's different ways to do it where you don't have to you know, invest 
all the money, and then as you're, and then pick your markets. You know, you can't be everywhere. Uh, pick the markets where you believe you'll have, you know, the most success for whatever product that you're uh, going out to to sell. And are you? What's the criteria for picking markets? How do you evaluate, you know, China versus Japan in a given category? I think you have to look at exactly that. What's the product that you're selling? So for us, you know, early on a priority call, once we realized that voicemail could be a big part of it, uh, we knew it was. Uh, there was a lot more in, uh, opportunity out out in China. If you looked at at Acme, uh, you know we knew some of the key accounts um, were moving to Voice over IP. So we knew France Telecom, Telecom Italia, Vodafone, uh, Telefonica had strategic strategic initiatives, right? So you do some market research. They had strategic initiatives around doing uh, VoIP projects. So we quickly moved into those areas. And then, you know, things follow. Once we realized we were being successful at t- in Telefonica in Spain, um, we knew that all the countries in Latin America were following and, and uh, c- not copying, but adopting what, you know, headquarters had decided. So we quickly went to Latin America and, and uh, understood that that was an interesting market for us. Okay, my conversation with Paisano and international sales mofo, Dino De Palma. Great uh, conversation and great advice, very consistent with my own experience. I hope it was helpful. You know, startups are thinking about international expansion much sooner than than ever. We like to say at Actifia, we were born global, uh, but I think that that's increasingly true across the board of companies that realize very, you know, early on they're solving a global problem and they need to do so globally, so... Uh, anyway, great conversation with Dino. Uh, want to thank him for spending some time. All right, how hard can it be? Is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How hard can it be? Is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio radically simple. Uh, Be sure to tell your friends about how hard can it be. Subscribe to us on iTunes and we will see you next week. Thanks.